Welcome, and thanks for checking out this podcast from First International Christian Fellowship. The following message you are about to hear was carefully crafted with you in mind. Wherever you are joining us from, we hope that this message speaks to you as it did to us. Now here's our guest speaker delivering this week's sermon. While while I'm just speaking to you and giving you a little bit of... um, kind of background on me and my family, if you would just turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 20. 2 Kings chapter 20. So I'm originally from Texas. There we go. There's always somebody. <laughs> Thanks, Vincent. Um, we... Uh, I should say, we. Uh, my wife is from Southern California. I went into California and stole the prettiest girl and took her out of California. That's how it worked. And um, we met in college out there. And then uh, we graduated. We dated off and on in college. And um, to her credit, she didn't marry me then. It's a really wise decision on her part. Uh, at that moment, we... Uh, we, we, we both needed a little growing up and maturing to do. I needed a lot um, just to be forthcoming with you all. Uh, but she went and stayed and taught uh, in a Christian education down in Southern California, Los Angeles area. And I went back to Dallas, Texas, where I'm from, and um, taught in another Christian school out there and uh, worked at a church. And um, then... Um, God really got a hold of me and decided that the best thing for my life would be to go as a missionary to Central America. And so I started out doing that. Now, we were not with the International Mission Board. Some of you might be familiar with the, how that process works. We had to go do all of our own individual support raising to be able to get enough funds to go and do that work down in Panama. And um, so we had to travel from church to church to church and kind of present our goal and our plans, and then they would decide on whether they wanted to throw some money our way or not. So we did that for about two and a half years, Um, and right at the beginning of that journey is when I reconnected with my wife out in California. And she, um, excuse me, she um, took pity on me, had mercy, said, you know, it's been this long, I might as well give him a chance. And so we, uh, we got married, and really it was her dad was the one I needed to convince to Round two was going to work this time, and uh, but but it's great. I have a wonderful relationship with my in-laws, and um, we got married 2012. So just past coming up on six and a half years now. So there you go. Um, so she married me, knowing that she was going to be a missionary wife. So we went down to Costa Rica, spent some time in language school there, and then went down to the field of Panama. All in all, we were missionaries for about five years, five and a half years, and. Then we, um, God completely threw a curveball our way and said, there's this little town in Elko, Nevada. And they, there's this church up there and they need a worship pastor, youth pastor. Um, I, I had been to Salt Lake City. I think I, I had heard of Reno. It's the one that's close to Vegas, right? <laughs> that's what everybody thinks. Um, had no idea there was anything in between those two cities. Um, sure enough, we lived there, and we got introduced to northeastern Nevada. And um, you guys have probably never been there because you have no reason to, right? Why would you go to Elko? <laughs> 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 a 
we always came to Reno, you know, or Salt Lake. But why would we go? But, uh, but yeah, we did that. We came to that church, Calvary Baptist Church, and served on staff there for about two years. And then God threw another curveball our way and said, do you like Reno? And we said, yes, we love Reno compared to Elko. But <laughs> Elko was actually pretty cool. It was a cool place. Um, and we were really just kind of getting settled into our, our, our routine there and our groove there when, uh, when God said, no, time to move. And he opened up this door with our Nevada Baptist Convention. How many of you guys, you don't have to raise your hand. I don't want to do that to you. But maybe some of you are a little shaky on what the Nevada Baptist Convention is, right? Some of you may know exactly what it is and what we do. But the idea is we are not a thing. We are a group of churches, all right? That's what the Nevada Baptist Convention is. We are a group of First International Christian Fellowship, uh, South Reno Baptist Church, where my wife and I are members, um, all kinds of churches throughout Reno, Carson City, Elko, Las Vegas, Henderson, all around the state. We have churches that have voluntarily decided we're going to do what God says to do in the Bible and work together and cooperate with one another because we believe that with the power of many, more can be done to get the kingdom of God advanced around this world. And so that is really the essence of what the Nevada Baptist Convention is. We are a group of 215 churches, and those churches have voluntarily decided to cooperate together through giving. And so a portion of your funds, the vast majority of your funds, will stay here and keep the lights on and keep the slides going and keep the preacher preaching and everything else. Um, but some of those funds you have decided as a church to go ahead and send around our state and help other churches. And so partially, we are a clearinghouse for that to happen. And we get to receive those funds and then divvy them back out to churches in need. And when I was at the church in Elko, we, were, we benefited from funds that you and all the other churches give. And when you put on um, outreach events and block parties and try to help a school or you do a big evangelistic outreach, whatever it is, then God uh, has allowed us to cooperate together and use those funds to spread around to help many, many churches you never, never other, otherwise have an opportunity to really be a part of. And so that is the awesome idea of cooperation. And we do that at a state level. We do that at a national level through the um, North American Mission Board, through the seminaries and training of new young people to go out and reach the world for the kingdom of God. And we even do it on an international level through worldwide missions, which we were a part of, not necessarily the Southern Baptist way, but that is the largest group of missionaries reaching the world today is through the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. So when you drop money in the offering place, it just came by for the offering bag. I don't know the proper term for that. I remember it in churches when I was growing up, but I don't know the proper term for that thing. When you put money in there, or you put a check, or you give online, or whatever you do, that money is going far beyond First International Christian Fellowship. It's helping this church, it's helping our state, it's helping our nation, and it's helping this world. If you don't like the current state of any of those things, you have the power to make a real change in it by investing in the gospel being spread. And that's really the only answer. We can try to elect different people, and it seems like whoever we elect, they're going to let us down at some point. We can try to make more money. We can try to 
get behind a cause. We can try to do all kinds of different things. And young people, you know what I'm talking about because the generations coming up are more cause-minded and cause-driven than maybe any that have gone before. They love a good cause, love to get behind something and feel like there's hope and they're changing the world. Let me tell you, the only way to change the world is to offer people Jesus Christ because he has the power. He said, all power is given to me. And so... That is why I'm very proud and very grateful to work for this organization, which is con- consisted of you and many churches like you across Nevada. And together, we are trying to turn back darkness and fight back darkness in this state and spread light. 2 Kings chapter 20. The next generation ministry focuses on teens and young adult college students. I put young adults and college students because not all young adults are currently enrolled in college, and that's fine. We still have a heart for all that whole age group, and that is what my state ministry looks like. And so I work with leaders all across the state who are reaching those people. And let me tell you, those are some of the most fun people in churches to ever work with, the ones working with teenagers and college students. You just can't beat those folks. They're awesome. And so I get to see a lot of great, great things happening around the state. Uh, As Pastor Joe mentioned a moment ago, we uh, started this this year, this fall semester that's coming to a close, um, we started an on-campus Bible study group. We don't have a name yet. We're very informal. We're still figuring out our legs and what we're going to look like. Um, But that's what this whole first year is about, just formation and finding student leadership on campus. But the idea is... We want to be on campus uh, next fall at UNR, and we're meeting every Saturday there right now on the second floor of the Joe Crowley Student Union in case there's any UNR. Are there any UNR students in here right now? No? Yes? One? Thank two? There we go. Keep asking. Maybe more hands will go up. That's great. We got two. Good. If you guys are available on Saturdays, one of them's already shaking her head. I'm not available. (laughs) Whatever you say right now, I am not available for it. Just mess it. Um, But yeah, Saturdays, 3 o'clock. Or if you know somebody, maybe not in the room right now, but you know someone who goes there, uh, please let them know. Saturdays at 3 o'clock on the second floor of the Joe Crowley Student Union. Okay? It's that big building right down from the stadium. Um, That's where we meet every Saturday. Um, Get them them connected with me. Talk to me after the service. I'll give you my card, and uh, I'd love to meet with those. So the goal of that ministry is just to get the gospel out and see discipleship happen and see college students plugged into churches here in Reno. So I'm not doing it for one, one particular church. I'm just doing it for the college and the college students. And then my goal is to get those students funneled into our churches here in Reno uh, and Carson City as well. We have some coming up from there. All right. I've talked enough. We're in 2 Kings chapter 20. In those days, verse 1, I'm reading out of the Christian Standard Bible. In those days, Hezekiah became terminally ill. What days? What days are we talking about here? That's one of those sentences where you're supposed to know what was happening before, right? In those days, well, here were the days. There was a day of great fear. It was a day of great trepidation. The Assyrian Empire was on the warpath. This was one of the largest, most successful, most warlike empires that the world has ever seen. You can read about them all throughout the history books. 
And they had held power. They had held that part of the world in an iron grip. And then the Assyrian king had died and his son had come to power. And many of the conquered peoples, including God's people and King Hezekiah, saw this as a good time for an uprising to throw off Assyrian bondage, to throw off their shackles of captivity and gain freedom, independence from that Assyrian empire. And so, in these days, the Assyrians, under the new king, who actually turned out to be one of the most fearsome, most effective rulers the history's ever seen, the Assyrian empire was then going with their army and systematically going to city after city, conquering any kind of resistance, any kind of rebellion, burning cities to the ground, taking kings captive, taking hundreds of thousands of people captive, putting them into slavery. And this is what was happening in these days. The people of God were divided. There was the northern kingdom of Israel, and there was the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom with King Hosea had already fallen. The Assyrians had already come through, taken them down, burned the city to the ground, and they were continuing on their warpath, and they were headed for Jerusalem. King Hezekiah was a good king. He had ruled his people well. He had followed God. He had tried to do the best of his ability, unlike his forefathers who had gone before him, and he had really focused on doing what was good and right in the sight of God. But this is a frightful time. On top of the, the advancing Assyrian army headed for the capital city of Judah, which was Jerusalem. On top of this, Hezekiah was terminally ill. He had just gotten the news that his sickness he would not recover from. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, came and said to him, this is what the Lord says. Here's your diagnosis. Set your house in order, for you're about to die. You will not recover. That's bad news, isn't it? It's not just coming from a doctor who could maybe be fallible, maybe, maybe get a second opinion on that. No, that's coming from God himself. Set your house in order. You're about to die. Hezekiah turned his face in verse 2 to the wall and prayed for the Lord prayed to the Lord, please, Lord, remember how I have walked before you faithfully and wholeheartedly and have done what pleases you. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Verse four, Isaiah had not yet gone out of the inner courtyard when the word of the Lord came to him. Verse five, go back and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, this is what the Lord God of your ancestor David now says, I have heard your prayer I have seen your tears. Look, I will heal you. Boy, it didn't take long, did it? Isaiah hadn't even left the building yet, and God said, you know what? I'm going to answer that prayer. Let me ask you this. What do you do in those moments of impossibility? Those moments when it seems like, I don't know what the answer is. Do you do what Hezekiah did? Turn your face to God. Cry out to him, knowing there is no other alternative. There is no other hope. Do you say, God, I'm not perfect, but I've done the best I can in my weakness, in my flesh, and my heart is to serve you. 
please rescue me. God hears that prayer. And God will answer according to his perfect will. That is a promise. And so, the message from God, from Isaiah the prophet, this time was, I will heal you. Continuing on in verse 5. On the third day from now, you will go up to the Lord's temple. I will add 15 years to your life. I will rescue you and this city from the grasp of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. Do you realize what happened here? Hezekiah prayed for healing. God gave him healing. And then in addition, he added 15 years onto his life. And then in addition, he would rescue him from the king of Assyria. He hit the trifecta. This was amazing. This was an incredible moment. I can't imagine the roller coaster of emotions that Hezekiah had been on. He gets the death sentence, and then he gets the best news he's ever heard. Verse 7, Isaiah said, bring a lump of pressed figs. So they brought it and applied it to his infected skin. He recovered. Hezekiah had asked Isaiah, what is the sign that the Lord will heal me and that I will go up to the Lord's temple on the third day? Isaiah said, this is the sign to you from the Lord. He will do what he has promised. Should the shadow go ahead 10 steps, go back 10 steps. We're going to skip down just because we don't have time tonight to get into all these, all these things. There's some good stuff. Encourage you guys to dig into this, this passage uh, when you get to at home. Maybe jump online and Google some Terry, or break out a book. Can you imagine that? Opening a book and turning pages. Um, And so down in verse 12, let's jump down there. At that time, now we know what time it is. Around this same time, Merodach Baladan, son of Daddy Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a gift to Hezekiah since he heard that he had been sick. Wasn't that so sweet of Merodach Baladan? He sent letters and a gift to his buddy, King Hezekiah of Judah, because he heard he'd been under the weather. And so verse 13, Hezekiah listened to the letters, showed the envoys from Babylon, his whole treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, and his armory, and everything that was found in his treasuries. You realize what he's doing here? There was nothing in his palace and in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then the prophet Isaiah came to King Hezekiah and asked him, where did these men come from? What did they say to you? Hezekiah replied, they came from a different country, from Babylon. I'm waiting for Hezekiah to tell the rest of the story of what he had done, but all of a sudden the cat got his tongue. Verse 15, Isaiah asked, he's having to dig it out of him. You know, okay, so what have they seen in your palace? You want me to get specific with you? And so then Hezekiah has to answer, and he says, they have seen everything. And I'm reading between the lines, but I can almost envision the panic starting to rise in his voice. Maybe that wasn't the best move. What have I done? Any heads of state in here? No? Anybody with, like, ruling experience that can kind of speak on... Hezekiah's behalf of why we're not, you know, we're not, we haven't been in his shoes, right? But I think we could still maybe say this wasn't wise. This wasn't a good move. You don't play your whole hand, right? You don't show all your cards. Um, 
It's Nevada, so I'm trying to use as many gambling terms as I can, okay? <laughs> Try to speak your language, just kidding. All the people from Texas where I'm from would be like, shame on you. Don't say that kind of stuff. Um, moving on. They have seen everything in my palace, the end of verse 15. There isn't anything in my treasuries that I didn't show them. Oh man, here it comes. Verse 16, Isaiah says to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Look, the days are coming when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until today will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. All that stuff you just showed them. Everything handed down to you by your father, your grandfather, all of the kings before you, everything that was entrusted to your care, it will be ravaged, taken away by the Babylonians. You thought the Assyrians were your problem. You just opened up a whole new enemy. But verse 18, it wasn't just material goods. Some of your descendants... And then Isaiah elaborates, in case he didn't realize he was talking about his lineage. He said, who come from you, whom you father will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Can you imagine getting this kind of news? Narrow it down, put it in your family, maybe your kids, your grandkids, can you imagine this kind of news coming into your life because of a terrible mistake that you made? Water it way down, maybe a terrible financial mistake. And now your children will be affected. Your grandchildren, your wife, your family will be affected. Hezekiah made a tragic mistake. And Isaiah just unfolded in great detail all that would happen. So Hezekiah's response in verse 18, he fell to his knees and he cried out to God and said, have mercy on me, I was unwise. Is that not what your Bible says? I wish that's what it said. I wish that's what he had done, but it's not. Verse 19, here was his response. This was King Hezekiah's response. Very different than his response when he got the news of his impending death. Death, Verse 19, Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. And Isaiah's got to be scratching his head at this moment. Did, did, did you hear me? No, it's not good. It's bad. That's bad news. This wasn't a good thing you did. This was bad. And I just unfolded a terrible future for you and your people. But Hezekiah wasn't thinking about the future. He was thinking about the present. He wasn't thinking about his descendants. He was thinking about himself. He wasn't thinking about the next generations coming. He was just concerned with the here and now. And it tells us his thoughts why not if there will be peace and security during my lifetime? Does anyone feel that that's callous? Does anyone feel that that's heartless? All these terrible things are going to happen to my people because of my error, my mistake? 
But you say that's going to happen in the future, not right now. And I've still got my 15 years extra. All right, we're good. Not worried about it. As long as it doesn't happen in my lifetime. And we can point fingers. And we can think how callous, how heartless, how self-centered. But how often do our decisions exhibit that same callousness, that same self-centeredness? How often do we actually take the energy, take the effort to invest in the generations coming up behind us? Or are we more concerned with ourselves? We're more concerned with the last 15 years that we've got left. And we're not worried about the ones coming up behind. Let them take care of themselves. They'll handle it. That is not what the people of God should respond. I want to show you a contrast. We're not going to be all bad news here tonight. First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 1. And we'll move through this quickly because I don't want to keep you any longer than is necessary. So First Thessalonians chapter 1. What time do y'all normally done? I should have asked you that before. Get two out, two and a half? Can I go? All right. All right, awesome. First Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 2. This is the church in Thessalonica, and Paul is writing this letter to this church, one of the early Christian churches from which we get our modern-day church today. And so Paul is writing, and he says, we thank God, and he's writing on behalf of Timothy and Silvanus, these early church leaders. And he says, we always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. Verse three, we recall in the presence of God, our father, your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We're gonna focus on those three phrases right there, your work produced by faith, labor motivated by love, and endurance inspired by hope. These were the three hallmarks of this church. This is why Paul could write to these people and say, we always thank God for all of you. That's a powerful statement. I can't think of a lot of groups of people that I've met and encountered in my life that I can say truthfully, I always thank God for all of you guys. Usually there's one or two. It's like, God, thank you for all of them and really help those people because they are struggling. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure there's a lot of folks thinking that about me too. <laughs> so isn't it funny? Different stages of your life, people feel differently about you. Go back to college, some of the people who knew me back then, they would never hire me. <laughs> Guarantee you that. But don't judge me because you were probably the same way, all right? In your 20s, come on now. 18 to 22, what were you like? All right. These, this church had an incredible reputation. This church was an unusual church. Were they perfect? No, they were not perfect. And if we read on through Thessalonians, we find different ways that Paul was trying to help them be better. But they were always able to thank God for them 
because they were exhibiting these incredible hallmarks of a selfless church, a God-centered church, and a church that was trying to leave a legacy for the generations coming behind. So let's look at it real quick. And the first mark of a kingdom-invested life and a kingdom-invested church, because we're speaking to the whole church together, is leaving a legacy of faithful work. This church was interested in leaving a legacy of faithful work. What did it say in the scriptures? It said, call your work produced by faith. Let's look at John chapter 17 and verse 4. John chapter 17 and verse 4. I'm going to move quickly. through. We're going to stay in this passage. If you just want to leave your Bible open to this passage, that's fine. I'm going to bounce around to some other scripture references as well. Uh, if you want to try to follow me, that's fine. But otherwise, they're on the screen. Uh, and you can jot the references down or whatever you'd like to do and look them up later. So John 17 and verse 4. Jesus is speaking and he says, I have glorified you, speaking to his Father, on this earth by completing the work that you, my Father, gave me to do. Jesus completed the work that God gave him to do. Did he not? He said when he died on the cross, he said, it is what? Finished. He did it. It was complete. The Son of God left a legacy of being faithful to the work that his God, his Father, had given him to do. Let's look at another example. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7. This was written again by Paul, who wrote that letter to the Thessalonians, and he wrote this letter to his, you could call him a protege, Timothy, his disciple, uh, the one that he was discipling to follow God. Um, and he wrote this letter, and he said at the end, this was actually the last letter, that the last book of the Bible that he wrote. He was in prison, and this is the very last chapter of that letter. And so at the end of his life, this is what Paul was saying, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Do you think that Paul left a legacy of faithful work for God? That certainly was not how his legacy started out, was it? If you know that story at all, if you don't, that's all right. I'll clue you in. Uh, Paul used to kill Christians. Christianity was illegal in that time. And Paul was the arm of the government going out and enforcing that law. He was stamping them out, and he was very enthusiastic about his job. He was feared by Christians. It was similar to other parts of the world in recent history where there's had to be underground churches, churches meeting in houses because free freedom of religion is not recognized in that country, or at least not reality. And so Paul had a radical change happen in his life, turning from killing Christians to being the most vocal and one of the most effective proponents of Jesus that this world has ever seen. And he truly changed his legacy and left a legacy of faithful work for God. So there's our two examples, right? And we could find more. So you say, what's wrong with me? Jesus did it. Paul did it. Why can't I do it? Say, well, maybe I'm not on that level. Maybe I'm not Jesus and I'm not Paul. So how am I going to do it? Because here is the simple truth. 
I'm not asking, and God's not asking us to be like him in this way. He's not asking us to run his race and finish his work. He's not asking us to fight the fight that Paul had to fight. He's asking us to finish our race, right? To fight our fight, to leave the legacy that God has left for us to leave. We don't have to try to be like somebody else. We don't have to compare ourselves among ourselves, which the scriptures actually admonish us not to do, and yet we still do, right? We always compare ourselves with one another. But God is saying, don't, you don't have to finish my course. You don't have to finish Paul's course. You have to finish the course I have laid out for you to run. I have tailor-made it for you. I have designed it for you. I have you in Reno, Nevada, Reno, Nevada right now at this stage in your life. You have to run your course here. I have you at First International Christian Fellowship. What is the impact that you can leave here? What is the legacy that you can build right here and right now? Maybe you've already built an incredible legacy, or maybe you haven't at all. But the chance is here now to impact now and to look around and ask God to show you, who can I impact now? What can I change now? How can God use me now? Who are the people that I have influence with at this moment in my life and to leave a legacy of faithful work. Not only did they leave a legacy of faithful work, they left, I'm sorry, they were known for an ongoing labor of love. An ongoing labor of love. Let's look back at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. In verse 2, and I turned away from it myself, I apologize. We recall, verse 3, I apologize. We recall in the presence of God our Father your work produced by faith and your labor motivated by love. You see, there's a lot of people that will work. There's a lot of people that have a good work ethic. There's a lot of people who will get out there and they will do the job that is set out before them until they don't anymore. Because their motivation has run out. Because they were motivated by the applause of men. Or they were motivated by some kind of inner gratification and building up of personal pride and ego. Or they were motivated by getting that warm, fuzzy feeling inside, knowing you're doing good for the world. Can I tell you, all of those motivations will eventually fail you. They will all run out. Your ego won't do any good anymore because your own personal failings will outweigh the good that you've done. And maybe you're the only one who knows it. But eventually, you're not going to like yourself anymore. Eventually, the applause of man is going to be meaningless. Maybe it's going to run out. Maybe people aren't going to recognize you when you do something good that you should have been recognized for. Maybe somebody else got recognized for, but you didn't. Maybe that warm, fuzzy feeling will go away because the people that you helped betrayed you. That guy that you gave money to on the street did something that you didn't want him to do with that money. Every motivation except a labor of love will run dry. 
And so how do you have an ongoing labor? How do you leave a legacy that lasts? It's being motivated by love, by God, because he first loved us and gave us the ability then to love him. First, First Corinthians chapter 13. Again, you can follow me or stay in First Thessalonians if you wish, but First, First Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 4, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, love is not boastful, is not arrogant. Basically, list all the characteristics of you and me, and that's not what love is. All right, let's continue on. Is not rude, is not self-seeking like we all are, is not irritable. Nobody in here has ever been irritable, right? Especially around the holidays, you never get irritable at family or her family or his family. And does not keep a record of wrongs. Babe, did you see that? (laughs) Sorry, I apologize. She's going to get up and walk out. (laughs) No, she's not. She's going to make me hear about it later. (laughs) And in another six months from now, I'll hear about it. I'm messing. All right. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Verse 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. That is why your work for God must be motivated by love. Because love won't fail. And let me tell you, they know when it's motivated by love and when it's not. Especially if we're talking about the next generations, us millennials, and then the generation Z coming up behind us, who we've got some in here tonight. Most of them walked out, but <laughs> like, we ain't going to stick around for that. <laughs> Mine walked out. Um, love, when it's genuine, can be seen. It can be felt. They know it because you'll put up with their maddening behavior, (laughs) right? Because it's love. And it's not even so much love for them as it is love for God. And you know God loves them more than you ever could. And because you love God, you're going to do your absolute best to love them too. And aren't you glad that somebody did that for you? Someone loved you. Someone loved me. And it is now left in our charge to carry on a labor of love and let that build our legacy of work for our God. That's what this church was doing. Finally, they were leaving a legacy of faithful work because of their ongoing labor of love. And then we see back in 1 Thessalonians, your endurance inspired by hope. And I'm phrasing it this way, the patient hope of absolute trust. The patient hope, because we had the word endurance in there, and it kind of gives off the idea of patience and lasting power, right? Enduring. The patient hope of absolute trust. Romans chapter 8. This is the last passage we'll go to, so if you'll go with me one more time. Romans chapter 8 and verse 24. We're going to get up to a really famous verse. If you've been around church for a little while, you've probably heard this one before. But let's start in verse 24. Now, in this hope, we were saved. 
talking about the hope that we believe that Jesus has the power to forgive our sins, to make us his child, and to take us home to heaven someday when we die. And if you have not given that kind of hope to God, I pray that you would not leave this building without at least having a conversation about it. Come up to Pastor Joe, come up to me, come up to many people in this room. Just grab somebody and say, I want to know, I want to hear more about how I can really have a relationship with God. I'm not talking about knowing who God is or being a church member or calling yourself a Christian. There's a lot of that going around with people who don't have real authentic relationships with God. And you'll know when you have the difference. You'll know the difference when you have it. So please don't leave here without having a conversation about that. So talking about that hope, that hope we have for our salvation, in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen, well, that's not hope. If you can see it in front of you, why do you have to hope for it? It's there. You can see it. Because who hopes for what he sees? Verse 25. Now, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. Because we don't know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us. I'm so grateful for that. Because, man, I don't know how to talk to God. I don't know how to talk to the king, creator of the universe. What should I say? What should my attitude be? There's been all kinds of books written about it, and I've read a bunch of them, and I still don't really know what the proper way is of addressing God. It's hard. So I just go to him, you know, just talk to him. And if it's something's missing or something's lacking, the Bible said the Spirit intercedes for us. So we don't know what to ask. We're weak. But God steps in, the Holy Spirit takes over where we leave off. And he intercedes for us, calls it with unspoken groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because they're one. The Father, the Holy Spirit, the Son of God, all three inseparable parts of one triune God. And he knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And so that's how we know. That's how we know. That's how we know that all things do work together for the love God who are called according to his purpose. It's the patient hope of absolute trust in God. He says, I don't know how you're going to do it. I don't know how you're going to work it out, but I'm going to go to you because I believe you have the answer. And I believe you will intercede for me according to your glory. There's a little girl who loved her daddy very much. I have little boys. I'm a, I'm a boy dad. If I was a girl dad, I'd probably be a terrible one. I'd just let her do whatever she wanted. <laughs> I would want to not. Those little, those, my two little boys, I don't let them do anything. Those poor guys. But they're good boys too, so that's good. They live in constant fear. <laughs> um, but this little girl loved her daddy so much, and her daddy loved her. They had a wonderful relationship, and he came home from a long day of work. He sat down in his chair, broke out his newspaper, 
And I think all the little ones left, so I don't have to explain what a newspaper is. I think everybody <laughs> understands. You know, it kind of rustles, and you open it, and there's words on a page. Um, and so he broke out his newspaper, and he's sitting there reading, tired after a long day at work. She comes running up, starts pulling on his arm. Daddy, 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 please build me a dollhouse. And he's like, oh, I love my daughter so much. That's the last thing I want to do right now. <laughs> he did not feel like getting up and building her a dollhouse. But he loved her. She'd been a good girl. He had no reason to say, no, you're not going to get a dollhouse. And so he said, okay, all right, I'll build you a dollhouse. And she runs off. He doesn't hear from her for a while. And what happens when you don't hear your kids? Right? You get nervous. What are they doing? So he goes to look for her. And she's in the backyard. She's got her little table set up. She's got all her chair, chairs around her table. She's got all the dolls sitting in her chairs. She's got the teapot, the saucers, the teacups. And she's out there just like waiting for the dollhouse to be built around them, basically, right? <laughs> is that belief? Is that trust? Did she believe her daddy was going to build? Well, yeah, because he said he was, right? So why wouldn't he? So what did he do? right? He built the dollhouse. What kind of horrible monster wouldn't at that moment? <laughs> he did. But how many times has someone not built you the dollhouse? How many times did someone break that trust? Maybe you believed like that little girl did. Somebody let you down. Somebody didn't come through. The daddies don't always build the dollhouses. The mommies aren't always there. Sometimes the ones we put our trust in the most break that trust. And so it's hard to hope. It's hard to trust. Until you step back and you think, well, I can point to all kinds of people who have broken my trust. And if we're honest, I can probably point to all kinds of people whose trust you have broken. So we're all untrustworthy, except for one. You can't point to a time when God broke your trust. You can't point to a time when God did you wrong. And you can try to blame things on him in a small-minded way, just like my son gets mad at me if I don't give him what he wants in that moment. And I'm knowing <laughs> he doesn't need that in that moment. He's going to wish he didn't get that in that moment eventually. God is who he says he is, and God will do what he said he will do. If you believe those two things, then you can trust God. And you can go forward with God. And you can make a difference. You can serve him. You can go out on a limb. And you know what Romans 1.16 says? It's my favorite verse in the Bible. And there's a lot of good ones, in case you didn't know. Romans 1.16, it says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. 
If you stay with Jesus, if you stay with the gospel message that he came to this earth, he was born of a virgin like no one else ever has been in history. He lived a perfect life for 33 and a half years on this earth. And then he voluntarily laid down his life and allowed wicked men to kill him. Almighty God who could have blinked them dead in a moment. But he allowed himself to be crucified because that was the only way your sin could be paid for. That was the only way I could be forgiven. That was the only way we could have any hope. And so he paid the penalty for all our wrongs. And if you stay with that message, that Jesus died on that cross, and after three days and three nights in the tomb, he showed his power to all men and women of all time, and he proved he was different. He proved he was God because he came up out of the grave, and he is alive. We don't serve a dead God. We're not up here singing songs about somebody who's laying in the grave. We're singing songs about someone who's alive. We're speaking out of the word, out of a book written by someone who is alive, breathed it into the hands of men so they would write down exactly what he has them to say and we get to read his words and we get to share them with other people and if you stay with that then you won't be ashamed you won't have the tree limb break underneath you you won't have that trust or that hope broken God is who he says he is God will do what he says he will do So how can I challenge you? Are you more like King Hezekiah? Are you focused in this moment, in this moment only? Are you looking at the broader picture? Are you being like this church in Thessalonica and you're really trying to leave a legacy of faithful work, not perfect work, but persistent work, staying at it, keep coming to church, even when you've gone through a rough spot? Keep trying to lead your family the right way, even when it's difficult and there's pushback. You continue on even when the going is tough because that's when God steps up even more and carries you through. What kind of legacy are you leaving? You know, Hezekiah, he didn't care about those next generations who were coming up, did he? You know who those next generations were? who were going to be carried off by the Babylonians? Let me throw a few names at you. Belteshazzar, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, more commonly known as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. If you grew up going to Sunday school or you've heard about those stories, those famous stories of Daniel in the lion's den and the three Hebrew boys rescued from the fiery furnace, those incredible miracles that we all get to read about and be inspired by, those young men were the next generation that Hezekiah was quick to write off. He didn't get to have a part in that. He led his people well until the end. And then he said, I did my time. It's time for me to worry about number one. This is my time now. And the last years of his life were lost. 
He didn't get to have a part in Daniel. He didn't get to have a part in Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. He didn't get to have a part in the great things God was going to do because he didn't care about the generations coming behind. He didn't care about what kind of legacy he was leaving. Can we not be like that, y'all? Can we not leave that kind of legacy both as a church and into our individual lives, our families? Can we not leave the legacy? And as our children are coming up and they're watching and seeing what our priorities are, can we focus our priorities on who God is focused on? And he's worried about those both in this room and also outside this room. He's worried about the souls of people other than ourselves, all right? So we have to look beyond ourselves and we have to say, as long as my God is pleased with me, it doesn't matter if I get to check off all the boxes on my bucket list. It doesn't matter if my 401k gets as big as I wanted it to be. It doesn't matter if I get to do all the things that I wanted to do and I have the most comfortable, relaxed life and I have the retirement I always dreamed about. What about your legacy? What about those looking at you, those coming behind. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, please help us to be so aware of those other than ourselves, God. There are young men and women coming up behind us. They're five years old, 10 years old, 15 years old, 20 years old, 25 30, there's young men and women in every generation coming up behind us. And may we remind ourselves that every generation of this church that has existed for so long, we have the responsibility, each generation, to pass that faith on to the generations coming up behind us. I thank you for this example, this church in Thessalonica who was doing that so well. I pray that you would inspire us no matter what stage of life we're in, help us to never get sidetracked, never get distracted, never retire from serving you, from being a Christian witness, both to those who do not know you and those who know you and need to know you more. I pray that you would reveal more of yourself to us. I pray that you would extend more grace to us, that we would go home and you would show us very specific ways that we can start making different priorities in our life, that we can start investing in someone else, that you would give us someone to take under our wing and begin to disciple and teach more about the faith to, that you would show us someone that we can share the gospel message with, that we would advance your kingdom and leave a legacy of faithful work motivated by our love for you because you first loved us, and that you would carry us through all the years we have left because of the patient hope we have that you are who you say you are. You will do all that you said you will do. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. That was the end of today's message. If you want to support our mission of reaching many others through this podcast, help us grow our ministry by visiting ficfreno.com forward slash give. To get the latest updates from our channel, hit the subscribe button. Visit our Facebook page by clicking the link below to let us know how God is moving in your life.